You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. These are both wonderful novels. I, I, I hope everybody here knows that they're going to buy these novels and really enjoy them. And they have, you guys have so much in common, so much sensibilities in common that were we to describe the novels kind of separately, people would say, what the hell are you doing, Rick? But I know exactly what I'm doing, as you'll hear when they start their readings. Um, who wants to read first? Steve, you go. You're <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I'm going to read from Mortality Bridge tonight. Um, uh, it came out in a limited hardcover last July uh, from Subterranean Press. The hardcovers here, uh, this was a numbered 750 copy edition. The ones here are the non-numbered ones. They are very rare. <laughs> um, those are the only ones anyone can get hold of. So uh, for what that's worth, um, you know, eBay awaits. Um, <laughs> I literally proofed the galleys on the paperback and the ebook yesterday. I don't have a publication date for them, but the uh, uh, flyers I gave out here have mortalitybridge.com on it. You can sign up to be notified uh, there uh, when the paperback or ebook comes out if you like. And there's also all other goodies up on the web website. Who's doing the uh, paperback and the ebook? Is well, it some? He reads. He reads. Oh, <laughs> yeah, really? that's a story in itself. Okay. Um, well, I wanted that's a. <laughs> uh, Mortality Bridge is sort of my mashup of the Orpheus myth about the musician who travels to hell to get his wife's soul back and uh, the Faust legend of the man who sells his soul to the devil in exchange for acclaim and worldly goods uh, and the legend of Robert Johnson, uh, the blues player, and the crossroads. Um, all you really need to know for what I'm going to read is that uh, my main character is a blues player named Nico who has sold his soul to the devil and is in hell to get his wife's soul back. Um, <clears throat> he's uh, uh, in this scene uh, on a reach of ice and he thinks he sees uh, a, a river in the distance with what seems to be a bridge across it. And as um, he walks across the broken reach, his socks squish in his shoes. <laughs> So let's get going. Nico's socks squish in his shoes as he navigates the Haiti Arctic waste. Across the broken reach, he hears the flattened groan of straining ice. And everywhere the ice has parted, he sees remnants of embedded bodies ripped apart by glacial motion. When he looks up again, the bridge has his complete attention. What he had taken for wavering air is really the writhing of the bridge itself. The bridge is built of bodies, thousands of them, naked and freezing, and huddled against the icy current forever breaking against them, and crying moans so terrible they sound like pleasure. They look like ants swarming the body of some animal. But these aren't ants, they're people. Half a mile later, they aren't just people. They're people Nico knows. The bridge is built of bodies of people he has met throughout his life. Teachers, schoolmates, playground bullies, lawyers, doctors, DJs, shrinks, friends, lovers, partners. There are so many. Nico thinks to find another way across, but knows there will be none. There's the ice, and there's the farther shore, 
and between the two are piled, screaming and contorted, everyone he's ever known who died. Nico looks up at the cavern sky. You sons of bitches. But in this old drama playing out inexorably as a spring unwinding, metaphors are manifest, and rules and traditions inviolate as natural law. So, Nico picks up his guitar case and heads out to walk across the bodies of those he has known. From the first rubbery step, it is horrible. Their flesh yielding as they writhe beneath him. Their hands reach out to grab his ankle to restrain him. Their grip is always feeble, but just strong enough to make him shake it off and then feel shamed. Still, he casts them off and staggers across their terrible mass, holding his guitar case high out of their reach. All of them moan his name. He does not want to look into their eyes, but must look down to see which way to step, and in so doing must meet their desperate gazes. But they're people, Nico. You knew them. There to one side is the outstretched arm of a woman who looks just like a grown-up version of Anne Ellison, the freckled girl he vied with throughout all of elementary school for the spelling bee championships. Even agonized and calling out his name, her woman's face contains a ghost of the girl she used to be. And now among the voices calling out his name is that of Aaron Farrell, a whiskey-voiced singer he had dated once and slept with twice and never called again. The cold hand on his ankle now belongs to Mrs. Thompson, his first grade teacher. She had seen the very picture of an upright, moral, God-fearing woman. What was she doing here? He jerks his leg away and kicks the jaw of Stevie Dane, his old high school uh, bandmate in the Spanish Flies, and his old drug buddy. <laughs> Stevie Dane, who rode a needle right into the ground. I'm sorry, Nico calls out to them all. I'm so sorry. But his cries are lost within the many-throated imprecation of his name. Keep moving. You can do that, can't you? Can you do that? What are you if you can? Which, of course, is why they're doing this to him. Rearing from the awful seething now is Bobby Harris, who had died of AIDS 10 years ago. Bobby was a good man. What was he doing here? Bobby Harris was a good man. Bobby's knocked aside by a woman Nico would have recognized no matter how much older she became, because she has the reddest hair he's ever seen. Betty, Nico calls out. Cousin Betty? Her name unuttered for how long now? Nico had lost his virginity to Betty Towers. Cousin Betty, because they were distantly related, and both had taken secret pleasure in this illicit fact. He wondered about her sometimes, where she was, who she was now, and now he knows. She's dead. She's damned. She's doomed to unending persecution here, used as a pawn to be used by him. Betty's batted aside and buried in the undertow of crawling damned, and Nico screams a wordless howl. This is more than can be born. As Nico heaves and tears his way across 
<clears throat> the population of his life, his scream becomes a wordless curse against whatever mind could send good people into hell and punish them forever for the arbitrary sins of an eye-blink mortal life. A mind that could use their own humiliation just to show one man what travesty and desperation he'll commit, all to save one of their number venerated by his heart. Thrust against him now is a pale, bald-headed girl whose name he can't remember. She was young, 12 or 13. The Make-A-Wish Foundation had sent his management a letter she had written. She was dying of leukemia and wanted to hear him play. She had seemed a homesick, fallen angel propped by pillows there. He'd asked her what she wanted to hear. And she had looked at cameras and reporters, and Nico had asked everybody but her parents to leave the room. And then he'd sat and played for her, as if sound waves from vibrating strings could somehow save her, as if whatever tore its way from Nico's core could enter her and make her anything but worse. Amazingly, she had asked him if he knew ain't misbehaving. And he had laughed and fumbled his way through it, remembering it really, but asking her to hum the melody and picking it out so that he could gradually perform a duet with the sad, pale, gaunt-eyed girl, tube-fed and smiling there on the white-sheeted bed. He tried to play upbeat, but he was sad. She was going to die. Sad and angry that she would never wear a prom corsage hold hands in a movie theater, make love, pay her own electric bill, name her baby. And now here she is, still 12 or 13, a naked, thin, bald-headed girl who clutches at his leg as if he is some bogus prophet come to trample his deluded flock and give them nothing but his unavailing touch. She calls out, Mr. Nico. Mr. Nico, her name, what was her name? You don't remember, do you, asshole? You played her some songs, and you joked in a hospital room, and all it cost you was a plane ticket and a day. And when you left, you were sad, but still given some cold comfort that at least you were able to cheer her up some little while. And then she died, and you forgot her. Whatever flimsy truce of old Nico forged with his own inner demon shatters at the touch of her small hand upon his ankle. The, off, the old ebb tide of self-destruction washes through him with an awful and familiar surge. I won't do this. Fuck you. I quit. I give. Nico stops his forward struggle. Hands claw at him. The girl's hand reaches toward his face and his hand intercepts hers. Their fingers clutch, entwine, and clench. She calls out, Mr. Nico. Nico's weeping, but he doesn't know it. He feels a tugging on his guitar case long held in his hand and lets it go. Feels a tugging on his foundering soul and lets it go as well and is dragged down. The cold touch of the dead swarms all about him. Will it hurt when they tear into me? Will there be a sleep and a forgetting? 
and after I am husked, and my flayed soul is cast out like a rind into this awful universe of garbage, will I see you ever, Jem? And will you forgive me if I do? Nico's body turns as he has passed among them. Will they crush him? Will he drown beneath the crush and press of cold and naked bodies? What are they waiting for? He opens his eyes and there is only blackness. He stares up at the cavern sky. All beneath him is a jostle. They're, they're carrying him. He is borne aloft atop a coruscating sea of reaching hands, passing him overhead like a concert stage diver, delivering him across the bridge of themselves. For a panic moment, Nico thinks they mean to bring him to the gaping maw of some mad chewing thing that will devour him and so commit him here forever. But look at their faces. Look in their eyes. Even in the midst of such despair, there is a kindled spark of gleeful rebellion, possibly the first defiance they have shown beyond the closure of their mortal lives. For this brief moment in their endless suffering, they carry Nico across a patchwork history of his peopled life, passed along and past. Joy floods Nico's heart. It hurts. It fills him with a trembling exultation. It makes him want to die. He lives within its fleeting heat like a moth dived headlong into consummating flame. Joy. <laughs> Turning now in their collective grip, he faces downward. A man grins up at Nico as he reaches up to take his, uh, Nico's weight. Too far away to hold him up, but reaching for him anyway. Now he sees the far shore nearing, sees his guitar case handed off toward it like a bucket in a fire brigade, sees a figure standing on the farther shore. Nico strains for a better look at it as he is jostled and bumped and turned about, his brief joy now stained by sudden doubt. It had looked like it could not be. They wouldn't. His buoyed spirits sink. Of course they would. Of course they have. Of course they've saved the best for last. Standing on the far shore, just beyond the bridge, past Eddie, the ice cream truck man who used to give him credit, and Jake, the club owner who used to pay off Nico's gigs and drugs, there with hands outstretched to welcome him, with the face so like his own, the face that Nico last saw, sightless and unmoving, rammed against the steering wheel in a crumpled wreck, Nico's brother, Van. Right on. Wow. Good God. Congratulations. <laughs> All right, Josh. This is the first time I've read this. Uh, oh, no, wait. I read this. I read a longer version of this uh, at FogCon. When's the movie coming out? <laughs> <laughs> when, when somebody in Hollywood finally reads the book. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't want to see this, I don't think. <laughs> this is one of those times you're like, no, I'd actually like you to adapt my work. <laughs> Maybe take some out. I saw it. Oh, yeah. thank you. This is actually one of the few things I could read without... 
passing out airsick bags, I think. <laughs> airsick bags, I like one, that. <laughs> one, one of the uh, uh, consensus is, is that a word? Consensus yeah. that, we're, <laughs> that we're kind of getting on it. Um, there's a lot of critics saying, this is almost more than I could take. And uh, um, I quite like that, to be honest with you. I, I'm, um, my, I, a friend of mine made t-shirts um, uh, of the title of a review that said, uh, depressing, disgusting, brilliant. <laughs> and I'm like, t-shirts, t-shirts. You know? And uh, it was wonderful. And, but uh, you know, I, I'm, my agent wants to turn that into part of a campaign like, Due to the intense nature of this novel, no one will be seated during the last three chapters. <laughs> you know, but it's a fair. I mean, it's a, it, it's a fair cop, really. But thank you. It's interesting that this is the month that I was a huge fan of Poe in elementary school. Yeah, yeah boy, so I remember you, that too. Yeah, don't you? Do you yeah. remember the first time you ran? Yeah. It, it was kind of like it was, it was like I can't believe this is all all there. It's just it's scarier than my, my nightmares. <laughs> That's because they're his nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Someone just told me that the way that Poe actually died was that there was um they were having him dress up in different outfits to go back into the voting booth. Time and time again. Oh, uh, really? To get somebody elected, and he was uh, so under the influence that ended up freezing to death on the street. Ah. I mean, that could be of questionable authenticity, but <laughs> I like that story, and I'm going to go with it either way. Interesting. Yeah. That sounds like something that might happen in uh, Damascus. Yeah, stranger things have happened, right? <laughs> Do you want me to go ahead? Yeah, go right sure, ahead. Yeah. Let's plunge in. Um, now we've heard one version of hell. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to, We're to plan to B. Hells, aren't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Contortion one. This is the, um, I've been working on these three novels all set in the Mission District of San Francisco for about uh, 10 years. And this is the culminating piece of the three book cycle. Uh, and it comes out on Tuesday. So this is like that really fun part of pre-pub where no one said anything bad about it yet. It's just this like wonderful, flawless artifact. <laughs> and then reality will soon set in from there. Um, but I'm actually just going to read from the beginning of the book, so it shouldn't require uh, much of a setup at all. The first chapter is called Seducing the Dismal. So let's start this one when a cancer patient named No Eyebrows creeps into Damascus a Mission District dive bar. For years, the place's floor, walls, and ceiling had been painted entirely black, but that afternoon, the owner added a new element, smashing 20 mirrors and gluing the shards to the ceiling so the pieces shimmered like stars, transforming Damascus into a planetarium for drunkards, dejected men and women stargazing from bar stools. When the first customer of the day walked in and witnessed the bar's broken mirror constellations, he said to the owner, hey, there must be 10,000 years of bad luck hanging here. <laughs> well, that would certainly explain a few things, Owen said, who had a heinous birthmark underneath his nose that looked like a Hitler mustache. <laughs> Damascus always had rock and roll on the jukebox. Right then it was ACDC, 
playing the only chord progression they knew, howling about salacious women, which was funny because Damascus had an almost exclusively male clientele. Old drunks talking to themselves, trying to barter the price of a Corona with the bartender. Surly construction workers who drank from the minutes they got off work until last call. Off-duty mariachis getting more tone-deaf with each tilt of tequila. Insipid 20-something Caucasian boys, their cheeks stuffed with carbohydrates and college degrees. Here's to honor, one white boy would say, getting on her and staying on her. There were a few female regulars, and one who haunted the place was named Shambles. She had acne scars all over her cragged cheeks, pocked like the mirror shards glued to the bar's ceiling. Her hair had been bleached too many times, tips brittle, broken, crooked, frayed bangs that fell down to her eyebrows and pointed a million directions like tassels. Her eyes used to be blue, but they'd faded to matte gray. Shambles was the patron saint of the hand job, getting strangers off for less than the price of a parking ticket. So far tonight, she'd done only one, though there would be more fondling to finance her bar tab. The night was young and full of fisted opportunities. No eyebrows stood next to Shambles' stool and ordered a shot of peppermint schnapps. Owens placed the huge shot down on the bar, and as no eyebrows reached for it with a shaking hand, Shambles looked at his sallow skin, the way it clung to him like a layer of film on cold chicken broth. Most people were shocked by his appearance because he reinforced the fact that everyone was going to die. People pursed their lips and averted their eyes, shaming him into near invisibility with the verve of their avoidances, trying not to ogle the prowling dead. But Shambles wasn't deterred or deflected or weirded out by his appearance. She saw him as a business opportunity, <laughs> dollar signs, an untapped masturbation market. Do you mind if I drink with you? Shambles said to no eyebrows, then asked Owen to pour her another whiskey. I'd like that, no eyebrows said. Thanks. Why are you thanking me for drinking with you? She said to no eyebrows. I was raised right. Cheers, he said, holding his schnapps up in the air like a Bible in a minister's hand, a prop to retrofit the fragile world. Instead of echoing cheers, though, Shambles crashed her glass into his, spilling whiskey on her fingers, and said, to livers aching like shin splints. <laughs> then they drained their shots, flushed faces from the spirits, humidity spreading through their private ecosystems. I've never seen you here before, she said. First time. Well, what brought you into this dump, she asked. I was incredibly parched. Well, you don't seem like you have much in common with these dead beats, she said. No eyebrows pointed at some of the men in their vicinity. Well, doesn't that make them the lucky ones? Shambles didn't know how to respond to this, didn't know what to do with that kind of tactless honesty amongst strangers. 
especially in bars where men and women typically honed their espionage, cloaked in personas. Deception was the norm. Cab drivers disclosed that they were venture capitalists. Rickety alcoholics morphed into ex-athletes. Those with anonymous office jobs had recently retired from the cubicle because of an important invention. In fact, one bloke even tried to convince a woman that he masterminded the caps lock key. <laughs> Every interchange was a con. Every night a pitiful costume party, except here was no eyebrows blowing the whole cycle of charades for everyone. Here he was having the audacity to be heartfelt and what was shambles supposed to do with someone showing honesty. So instead of answering him directly, she turned her attention to tawdry commerce. How'd you like to get off? She asked him. And as soon as they were in Damascus's bathroom, he yanked his pants down. Shambles locked the door, showed him a rubber. It's 20 bucks with this, she said. She shook the little silver square back and forth, business savvy. It's 40 without. She pulled a lube tube from her purse and squirted it in her palm, working it around. The bathroom light fluttered off and on, a faulty bulb looking like the gloomiest disco ball in the world. Forty, forty, no eyebrows said, bending at the waist and fumbling through his pockets for money. He stood up and gave her two twenties. My rules, she said, don't touch me, don't come on me or I'll scream. Of course, he said, I'll even buy you a drink later. That's real chivalrous, she said. You uh, must be from Camelot. Kansas City originally, he said and smiled at her, but she didn't smile back. Does that feel good? Shambles asked him. Yeah, it, it feels great. He closed his eyes so he didn't have to watch the droopy thing flop around. Goddamn chemo. Closing his eyes so nothing existed except her hand on his body. Faster, she asked. Just keep touching me, he said. Someone jiggled the locked door and knocked on it. Just a minute, Shambles said, increasing her speed. No eyebrows moaned feebly. He grinned, remembering when his wife used to touch his body. He'd taken it all for granted, every fingertip traipsing across his skin. The way his wife Sally used to run her hands through his hair when he couldn't sleep. And now there was no hair, no wife, no daughter, no chance of living more than another couple months. He'd removed himself from his family, vanishing from the North Bay into San Francisco because what was the point of prolonging a life mired in illness? Why postpone death if it was the only way to hush the squealing reality that he'd never see his daughter grow up? If these were his last weeks, he would not waste them saving himself. Now no eyebrows glanced at Shambles, who averted her gaze to the ceiling's wavering light. Someone knocked on the door again. More time, Shambles said. Why can't I touch you? No eyebrows asked. Her hand slowed down. She wanted to look at him, but beat back the urge. It's one of my rules. Yeah, I know, but I'm wondering why. Still resisting her eyes fixed 
on the shuddering light. She said, because I'm not a whore. How would that make you a whore if I touched your shoulder? Don't touch my shoulder. I'm not going to. Do you want me to stop? She let go of him, and he shook his head. Then don't ask any more questions, she said. Please, he said, I need you to touch me. No more questions. Shambles fumbled for it, squeezed it harder. Do you like that, she said. And he said, don't stop touching me. And someone knocked on the door again, and no eyebrows threw his head back. Every disappearing detail of his disappearing life dwindled while Shambles touched his body, and he felt pleasure, actual pleasure. This was the first hand on him in months that didn't belong to a doctor or a nurse. And 30 seconds later, he came, gasping for air and gasping for life and gasping for hope. Thank you very much. We're just the cheerful pair, aren't we? <laughs> uh, I think yeah. we've got a nice light Saturday evening, a couple of laughs, meet some new people. Well, I think we can agree that uh, one theme I hear in common is uh, an old Sartre quote, uh, hell is other people. <laughs> and, and, uh, but one of the things I like about both of your works, these are our stories of people who are tormented, who are terrible or in living terrible lives, have lived terrible lives, they're going terrible places. There's humor in them, but there's also, you guys are masterful, masters of compassion for all the terror and the horror and I the- I knew I should have brought some ex-girlfriends here. <laughs> <laughs> Just for, to for all the, the terror and the horror and the, the disgust and distress of economic circumstances, of physical circumstances, you guys love these people, sure. and that's just so amazing. That comes through in every word you read, every word you write. And, and I'd like you guys, that doesn't come out the first time, does it, Josh? I mean, did that happen like, the, just snap? I mean, it's, it's a, it would be a much sexier story, right, if we just like sit down and then the muse whispers in our ears and it's blown out that way. <laughs> Uh, but I think that, that empathy really comes with the revision process. When, when you find yourself, um, like actually occupying these consciousnesses that are completely independent from your own. Like it takes me a long time to be able to venture into somebody's, you know, metaphorical heart and metaphorical soul and their in their mind, understand their history, what makes them act the way that they act. And then by the time I've done all that kind of off the page research, I'm really invested. I mean, I, I really do truly care about these people. I mean, it's as sick as it sounds, my imaginary friends are the people I talk to the most often. You know, and it took me a long time to write this book. Um, mm. So I do, I've doted on them so long that I, that's a really earnest connection. Steve, because I, I hear that I, in I, yours too. I mean, absolutely, uh, revision was what lent it that. Uh, um, uh, this book took 25 years to get into print. We, uh, nobody knew what to do with it. I have reams of rejection slips saying, I love this, no idea what to do with this, and which is actually kind of fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, early on, it was uh, really more of a catalog of woe and a stretch of stunt writing, you, you know, than um, uh, I didn't, um, uh, uh, I didn't have, I mean, it, it's really funny how much is the same, you know, that what, what the man has done and what he wants to atone for, but it is that, that compassion, that sense of, uh, of taking the reader into his head and understanding 
his yearning to try to achieve some good, you know, and, and he's at, at the point where he feels like even just changing something is a, is a victory, not winning something, you know, and, and, and starting to understand that not doing this for himself is part of the reason to do things, you know, and, and so uh, he's, um, but, but that compassion definitely became layered in, and, sure. but, you know, who wants to walk through hell? I mean, through a pretty vividly, horribly realized hell, if you don't care about that person, if you don't want him to atone, otherwise, it really is just the circus of depravity, you know? Well, well you that's know, probably the biggest, like, the, the one advantage literature has over other art forms is that we can actually, like, embed somebody in thought process. We can actually, like, show them what it would like to exist in another logic system that's, that's not our own. And like once we're once we understand who that person is, who's you know traversing even a landscape as as treacherous as hell, if we're like understanding who he is and what's made him who he is, like we're happy to go on that journey with him, even if it's going to be painful. I, I dig that. You know, too, it strikes me that for both of you, being able to read your own work that you'd written was a really important part of your writing process. That you had to invest yourself as a reader to get the reader's perspective um, before you could go back and finish the writing, I, it seems to me. That, and that's, that's interesting because as people who just do the reading, we just think, oh, they just create. And we don't think that you're there with us, too. I think most writers write like readers, uh, you know, <laughs> especially, I think, uh, I even teach this uh, uh, about, uh, you know, revision is, is really where a lot of your writing takes place. You know, the, you, you carve away everything that looks kind of like a guy, and then you do Michelangelo's David, you know. <laughs> uh, um, I, I don't, I, I know we'd like everyone to believe that, ha-ha, you know, it just emerged like Athena from my forehead. But, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that ain't how it goes. I'm sure that book was revised literally 40 or 50 times. And, um, uh, uh, and, and for me, there's a part of my head that's a kind of nasty critic and an editor, but there's also a reader who wants to read a good book. Yeah. And as I revise, that reader has instincts. That reader wants certain things or says, uh-uh, you know, I mean, and listen to that reader or you're in trouble, you know. Now, I really agree with what, what Steve is saying, too. And, and often I find that it's, it's fun to think about different kinds of readers, like while I'm editing. So I got some great advice once that was, as you're doing like your rough draft or your early drafts, you want to kind of be like this improvising musician where you just allow yourself to be like really free, like completely liberate your imagination. Like there are no rules. In fact, if you think there are, like those are the things you should be subverting along the way. And then as you get deeper into the revision process, you want to be a bit more fastidious, you know, a bit more pragmatic and say, okay, I, I gave myself this wonderful license early on. Now I need to really make those determinations and see if all these things are actually serving the narrative. It took me years to get yeah. to that. I, I was very... I would not write because, or I'd write a section that was terrible, and I'd be, this is terrible, and I'd stop. And right. it, it, you, had, you had to allow yourself to suck. I mean, yeah, you, yeah, you had yeah. to go, look, you know what? I'm at home in my underwear. No one, they're not going to see this. <laughs> I'll put on the suit and go into public. Sure. And, and so giving yourself permission to go somewhere lousy, to write a stretch of bad writing. Um, and what I found was that when you do that, A, it gives you the inertia to continue. Right. But B, there's generally a kernel of something that you will salvage. Sure. Whereas if you just say, no, it must be perfect, and you hit a wall, you don't get anything done. Yeah, I know? teach in the MFA program at, at USF. And what I always tell my, my students is, if your novel ends up being 300 pages, 
you write 1,200 pages. And the, the, the most splendid delusion that we have to believe as novelists is that those 900 pages that a reader doesn't see are just as vital and just as necessary as the 300 that end up being published. Otherwise, we're never going to like conjure the oomph for the brazenness or the audacity to finish. We have to believe that that cache or that reservoir that no one's going to see except for us is just as important as what's you know, bound and placed on the shelf. I take a sort of perverse pleasure in looking at deleted scenes on DVDs. Totally. And going, I see why you made that. I see why you cut it. Yeah. But, you know, but you look at that and you go, okay, so there are a thousand people involved in making this and they spent $200 million and they're just as stupid as I am really, you know, in this process. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's a sort of misery loves company sort of, it's, it's, motivating in an ignoble kind of way. <laughs> Next time I'm having a bad day, I'm going to try that, see if it makes me feel better, watch some DVDs. I used to tell students, uh, I, I, you know, who'd, who'd be like, you know, I, I don't know if I suck or whatever. I'd be like, you know what, go to Barnes & Noble and get a book at random. And trust me, you will be better than that. I, I'm sorry to say this, but, but it, the truth is it doesn't matter if you suck. You can get published. That's thus publication. You know, not sucking is really not essential for publication, and, and that's just the kind of wrong way to think of yourself. Do yeah. I like this? Does it work? Right. You never know if you suck or not. I mean, right. you, you know, some people think you do and some don't. So sure. you just, you know, if you let that stop you, you won't, you won't try if you won't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, too, both of you guys specialize in creating characters who, if we saw them on the street, we would cross the street to avoid them. We would like duck into duck into a woman's lingerie store <laughs> to avoid them. <laughs> we, we, I like that image of Rick. I like to think I create characters who work in lingerie stores. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> really? So, I, I mean, like, uh, I mean, huh. and so I'd like you. To, they're they're you know they're not very nice people. They might sell their souls to the devil, or they might be giving hand jobs in the bar. Sure. But you guys make them likable and we we love them. So why do you choose those I mean this is like setting a challenge for yourself, you know? <laughs> I don't, I mean do you choose them? I don't know that you choose them. I you know something in you for for me it's oddly well, I don't how think did of you, them that way. How did how did you how, how did you happen upon Nico? How did you first meet Nico? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I've known an awful lot of musicians and had roommates who are musicians. I've known a lot of, you know, I, I, I love musicians. I, I, I think there's something incredibly pure as an art form about music. It's just so direct from here to there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I admire them because they can work in groups and react like a school of fish, and that's so alien to writers, you know. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I like that idea. The school of fish. That's well, a really great they're, analogy. They're giving something over to some greater thing, and and writing is very solitary and hard. It's hard to. It just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And so this part of that process I admire. I just love musicians, and I you know I mean and, and I'm a DJ, and I've just been in, you know involved in music in some way for many years. Um, so for me. You know, it's funny when people talk about the story elements. It seems like a pretty standard story, you mm -hmm. know. And, and I. But I know those people. I know, you know, I've lived with those people. I've seen, I lived with, I mean, I've lived with junkies, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's, you know, and not by choice, not because I'm so attracted to the dark side, <laughs> but because you're like, Christ, I have to save enough money to get out of here. <laughs> um, but I don't know that I'm a, I don't know that I'm attracted to dark, well, I'm a kind of dark guy, but I'm not a cross the street to avoid him guy, but I think that my people tend to be fairly bitter. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know where I get that from. 
It's inexplicable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. So please yeah. answer it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny though. The, I think the. Um, how do I want to say this? I'm really interested in, in building people that are going to make my my readers invest their own moral compasses. I don't think my readers are making any worse decisions than people that cheat on their wives or drink too much or beat their kids. I might choose hyperbolic metaphors, but I mean, that's the same stable of sins as far as I'm concerned. What mm -hmm. I want to do is put you inside a mind and you, along the journey you say, I don't agree with that decision, but I understand why this person's making that decision in a way where I'm engaging my empathy for them. And wait, but I didn't want to engage my empathy with, with them. What am I supposed to do about that? Like I always think about characterization as being um, based on complications. So like I introduce somebody in chapter one, and maybe like you in chapter one, you, you see them be a bastard. And what do you do in chapter two if you see them do something that's beautiful or something that's heartfelt? Like how do those two things collide? And then in chapter three, what if I complicate that even further? So you're actively having to kind of realign or reassess your relationship with somebody along the way. And then your audience is really invested in that affinity. They become like this really active participant as the pages continue to turn. Um, their imagination's so alive and trying to put things together um, that, that your readers, you know, flipping pages and hopefully staying up past their bedtime. And, Oh yeah, no. Sabotaging the next day. It, it, it's a really compelling book to read. I just, I, I couldn't put it yeah, down. It. Okay. It's really fun and, and very engaging. And, and this leads me to a to a uh, the, a next natural question about uh, plotting. Mm -hmm. how, how much do you know about what's going to happen to those characters when you set them when, when they meet in the bar? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I have friends who write with kind of really elaborate schematics or outlines or whatnot, um, but I'm a huge advocate of the like happy accident, trial and error method, where I want to know what chapter one is, and I don't want to know anything else. Oh, wow. Uh, and that so puts an incredible onus on the revision process, because I'm going to make a lot of wrong turns as mm -hmm. I'm going, but I love the surprises. I mean, I'm a big advocate of active characterization, where I don't think you can really know what character A is going to do in chapter 9 before you start writing the book. Like, I think that's a hypothesis. I think it's interesting, you know? though, that you know you've taken wrong turns, so there's some part of sure. you that feels, you know, yeah, that has yeah. a sense of, of some path. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, might, I probably don't catch those in real time, though. Oh. I think that would be like two or three months later, and I'm like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> i got to do that whole movement again, don't I? <laughs> oh, man. Now, you had a pretty strong idea of what your novel was going to be. Or at least you thought, you thought you had a strong idea. I don't outline. Uh, for me, outlining takes away the impetus that makes me want to write. And sure. it's sort of like somebody who's recited something so many times, it sounds like it's by road. I, and I, I <laughs> outlined books to me tend to be a little very plot oriented. Mm -hmm. you know, they're event oriented. Um, but that said, uh, with the exception of the book that I'm working on right now, uh, I always have known almost everything that's going to happen. I mean, I, I, I know the framework, and then the way you paint the house kind right. of can surprise me, mm -hmm. but pretty much I know what's going to happen. I, I, um, but I, I heard a writer once say that uh, everything that happens in a book should be inevitable, but only in retrospect. And, <laughs> I like that and, idea. And that's like, true. And I like that feeling of a book. I like that sense when you're writing it that you're on, like you said, you're surprised by things, but you also feel like you're on the path it needs to be on. Your instincts are telling you to be here. Um, and generally, I have written the ending well before I've gotten to it. Oh, really? So you don't write in order? Uh, no, I don't. I write as sequences come to me, uh, you know, and a lot of those end up part of that 900 pages, sure, you know. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, 
sometimes a situation or a line or something will, because I don't outline, you know, if I'm like, I want to write that down and integrate it later. And maybe it'll be changed a lot. But mm. yeah, but my endings have almost always been last lines and everything have almost always been well in advance. This one I'm writing now, it's weird because you very comfortably describe something that I'm not used to, and that's I don't know chapter one, and then I go, and I'm I'm doing that now, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's really odd for me. I, I I really don't know where it's going, and and. and um, but I bet that pushes you to be a better writer. Like I think the, the greatest artists are the well, ones when they get out of your comfort zone. You know, like yeah, and, and that's exactly that's exactly what I'm liking about it is the fact that it's bugging me. I'm, right. I, I, you know, I don't uh, I don't like to. I, I say this a lot, but I, I, you know, I no one applauds when someone walks a, a sidewalk. It, it's it's far more noble to fall <laughs> off a high wire. Sure. You know, take the chances. Right. If it, if you can't fail, it's not a risk. Right. And yeah, maybe I'm blowing it. I don't yeah. know, but I, I do like that. You know, it's, I, but yeah. it's funny to hear you talk very sort of matter-of-factly about something that I'm like pulling my hair out of. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't punch me. That's, that's <laughs> you bastard! <laughs> don't you know that we sweat blood for this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, talk about comfort zones. These are books that. <laughs> yeah. These are not. This is not happy comfort reading. Right. Uh, and so, uh, but it's really compelling to read. So that's a really interesting to me as a reader. Uh, I mean, you, your design of hell <laughs> is, as you said, logical, isn't it? it's, it's unfortunately so, yes. It, it's, it's, um, yeah, my hell makes sense. I, I, I researched. Um, it's kind of science fiction-y, I thought. I've always wanted to be able to say this. Uh, uh, <laughs> I did a lot of research on the design of um, concentration camps and theme parks. And I found that they really are designed for the same reason, and that is traffic flow. And, uh, and there, there's, a, there's a joke in, in uh, Mortality Bridge where a demon, there's a big line, and demon's like, we need to get more of those Disney engineers down here. Um, wow. and, um, and I treated Disney, I, I treated hell, I called it an abusement park. And that's, that's how I treated it. What's hell's, hell is like a, a theme park that is meant to torture you forever. And uh, and I just kind of went from there, you know. That that made perfect sense to me. Um, so it didn't have the sort of, I guess, moral resonance that Dante does. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of axe grinding going on with him. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, you know, I did try to make the punishment fit the sin mm -hmm. and, and and stuff. And uh, uh, my hell is an infinite plane in a cavern, which is kind of paradoxical. But there you go. It isn't real, so I can say it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's cool. Your hell is the mission district. My hell is the mission district. <laughs> so I think your hell's scarier, because I could actually take Bart to your hell. <laughs> yeah, I live there, so definitely. It's weird. Well, but the, um, I, you know, I think I actually, in my own weird, contorted way, like I wrote this book as like a love letter mm -hmm. to the mission district. I was about to say there's a real fondness in what you read. Yeah, right, yeah. No, I would agree. It's still, it's something that is somewhat distressing in, you know, sure. in, in one's initial meeting. And I right. think that's, well, that's what I really like. There's a kind of dissonance right. in both of your guys' work that I think it is, makes it more powerful, more inviting. And, you know, when you hear it, you just kind of go, yeah, 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 okay, this is good, I'm really digging it. And, but if you start to, to scratch at it, at what's happening to your mind, what the prose is doing to your mind, what the writing is doing to your mind, 
it's really, I think, interesting and very complicated. Yeah. And I think that's what I really like about what reading can do for you, is that you just sit down and read, and it's pretty simple, but there's lots of way interesting stuff that's being done to your brain by people you don't know. So I, I, when you guys are doing... Language is a virus. <laughs> language is from outer space. <laughs> Mr. Burroughs has always, uh, he was always uh, right on with that. Yeah, I think so. Honestly, Absolutely. I do. Well, I mean, um, a as writers talk about this kind of sense of dissonance, do you guys, um, uh, do you plan this? Do you, do you, like when you're writing hell, you're, you're, you're there, you're writing about hell. You want us to stay reading the book. I mean, you don't want to repel us, so you got to keep us I in can't there. I can tell you how many times throughout the book I, I really was like, you know, I love this, but I don't have a clue who would read this. <laughs> I mean, there, there was the odd sensation of, um, uh, this was the first thing I'd ever done that I knew without a doubt that had some other writer written it, I would really love it, which is an odd way to feel <laughs> about your stuff because I, I don't have any distance usually, no subjectivity. Mm -hmm. But this one uh, doesn't feel, I mean, it just felt, I, I just, you know, and, 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 um, um, and I, you know, I would wonder, are you taking this too far? I, certainly it was very indulgent early on. I mm -hmm. definitely had to, I mean, I never met a four I didn't like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just everything. It was just crazy and full of itself. And I, and I really had to back off and get some distance and all. But that, distan that dissonance, I don't know how to answer that because, I, I mean, I, I think that if you are entertaining people, you have some kind of duty to them. But I also think... You, you have a duty to yourself to do exactly what the thing demands you do. Right. And if that's too much, then it's too much. I, I, you know, I've had people, you know, I've had some serious criticism that, look, this is really horrible. And I'm like, what part of hell wasn't clear to you here? I'm sorry if the nicer hells are okay with you, you know. And I sound like Tom Hanks all of a sudden. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, but, but I'm like, hello, journey through hell. I, 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 you know, we'll do the Muppet version next time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think part of the idea of um, the dissonance is, is like shattering the reader's status quo mm -hmm. and like thrusting them into a milieu that makes them uncomfortable. That's like, exactly what you both do, and we like, but yeah. we like that. Totally. I remember who it was. I heard this definition of the word visceral one time, which was that you're sitting in the front row of a, of a playhouse, and the actors are doing a really intense moment, and their spit is flying out of their mouth and hitting you and you're getting doused as, as they're continuing to deliver these really impassioned lines. And I think about that all the time when I'm putting scene work together. Like, is my reader enough in the action where they don't want to be there, but they can't look away? Mm -hmm. I have to say, though, I mean, I don't think that there's a majority of readers who genuinely like that. I mean, I think people tend to read for escapism. I think, I've, I've heard any number of times, I don't want something heavy, you know? Sure. And, and that's, I don't think that's wrong, but I don't think that I necessarily have an obligation to for that guy to be my reader, just don't read me then. I, you know, because I, I, this is, I don't know how I could tell something like that, or you could tell a story about that place honestly, right. and not go somewhere that some people aren't going to want to go. And well, you just have to go, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose some of you here. Yeah. But I think it's really important, too, for readers to get out of their comfort zone. And I think that's one of the traps 
of reading is that we say, okay, I like science fiction, or I like mysteries, or I like adventures, or thrillers, or romance, or whatever. And then after a while, it's kind of like, you know, well, I started out snorting heroin. It was pretty good. Now I, can, now I can't do that anymore. That's not getting me the high. I've got to start shooting the heroin. And then, and then I'm going to get it, go to the hospital. Where's and free, kid? <laughs> yeah, get his IV and, and well, to you me, know. It's almost, it's almost like pornography, you know. You're, you're really just... You're just using it to, for almost some prurient interest. You know, you're using it like to masturbate with your brain. I mean, a lot of people in their escapist reading or whatever, they, they're, I want this. You know, I want Girl Scouts in Red Socks com. You know what I mean? <laughs> that there's, there's, <laughs> you know, whatever. They're very specific, and they they expect a certain thing from it. And to me, it's almost pornographic. Mm -hmm. you, you know, in in terms of the role it plays, and. Um, well, I think what, what readers themselves can really benefit from is to deliberately go out and find something that's out of, that's out of their comfort range or just different. And when you come back from that, it's just like a palate cleanser. It's why they put the ginger, sure. the slice of ginger in the, uh, in the sushi. So you can you know, have come back and actually really taste it. So you can read something that's fun and light. And sure, I'll, I love to read a good, fun, light book. And, yeah. you know, I just read the Meg Wolitzer, The Fingertips of Duncan Dorfman. It's a, it's a kind of a YA book about a kid who has a superpower. He can read Scrabble tiles. Oh, wow. and it's, I mean, what, what a bizarre book. But it was really fun. It was charming and, and nice. And it's all about the Scrabble championships. And who knew there were Scrabble championships? Then I read Damascus. Yeah, what are these things not like the other? But, I mean, the, the back and forth, that's what makes, it, makes reading uh, uh, worthwhile. And, and it gave me, Damascus sure gave me some perspective on Duncan Dorfman. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad we can work together like that. You know, you know, you were talking about something, though. You mentioned a word that really, I think, is important to both your books, scene work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys have some incredible set pieces. I mean, that's kind of, I think, uh, your, your, both of your fortes. So talk about, uh, you know, your just creating these set pieces. How much of this is, I mean, a part of the flow, but how much of it is, um, you know, uh, okay, ah, Bridge, mortality bridge. Well, it's funny hey, that you say right. that. Uh, for me, the, the first complaint that really hit home in an early draft was a friend of mine who had read it, didn't say anything to me about it. I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, and, and I finally I said, look, you know, I mean, if you don't like it, that's okay, but I want to hear. And he said, I think as a collection of set pieces, it's really good. And I, you know, like oh. the, the penny dropped for me. I thought, you know, he's really right. I mean, I wrote it as like, ha-ha, I'm doing a tour de force. You know what I mean? And, and that's... Well, good for me, right? Go off in the corner and do that by yourself and wash your hands later, Steve. You know, it, it's not, um, why should anyone care about that? And for me, anyway, is the noise in my head bothering anyone? <laughs> Sorry. Um, um, for, for me, situations sort of inspire certain scenes. You know, you have certain groups of characters have, you know, like, this has to happen. And, and, and Scenarios seem to be and I guess those anchor your books. You know, uh, um, uh, uh, I, I think everything I've done has had a lot of set pieces, but it's strangely I don't think of them in those terms. I, I guess I, I think of them more in terms of a narrative with sort of crests and valleys, with a, with a, an intensity and then a 
you know, denouement, and then, you know, and, mm -hmm. and doing that. Yeah. And I think about, I read a lot of plays, and I'm, I, mean, I always come back to Sam Shepard, because he's, like, my guy. Mm -hmm. Like, I love Sam's work. But he always would use, so he was such a master of seeing what was on stage and then making sure he was, like, extracting every, like, drop of juice and vibrancy from, like, everything that was on there. So I'm probably, like, I'll accidentally, you know, place this on stage. And then I'll say to myself, well, if it's there, and he's there in space, what can I do with that stuff? And then kind of start to play with it from there and see where it ends up going. But, again, I think a lot of that stuff is subconscious in early drafts and then gets more intentional as the process goes on, at least in my world. Yeah, in a way, set piece is a great phrase because it's like you have this sort of defined world, you know, even if it's the mission or hell, I mean, it's, it's still a fictional world with boundaries and rules and you have these pieces in it. And you're moving the pieces about and you start to see certain inevitable configurations, yep. you know, that arise. Hang on for a second. Are you hearing that in the headphones? What? It's a speaker? It, it's just... <laughs> That's the technical. Part. I think I think that uh, the speakers are telling us, as is my son, and uh, the time on the tape, two minutes. Gentlemen, you have two minutes. One minute each. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is this driving for a prompt? Anything specifically? Uh, uh, tell us what's next. Um, speaking of getting out of your comfort zones, I just finished. Uh, my first fairy tale will be my next book. Um, no more, no more bar stories. Kind of trying to try some crazy postmodern fairy tale. Cool! I can't wait. Yeah, I, lots of magical realism. I think it's going to be called "Find Your Fight Song." I'm still toying with it. We'll see how it all shakes out. And what? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm doing a book called Avalon Burning that uh, came out. I didn't intend to write. Um, uh, the you have a flyer for something called Elegy Beach that was a sequel to my first novel written 25 years later that I just went, oh, no, I'm going to do a sequel. And, uh, uh, and a character in that sort of walks on and steals the book and walks off, Avi from Elegy Beach. Mm -hmm. And she, um, I just fell in love with her, and I thought, there's a whole story here. <laughs> that I'm literally writing the book to find out what it is, which is very new for me. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm almost done with that. It, it, I know this sounds oxymoronic, but it keeps getting longer as I write it. <laughs> but this is the one that where you just had the idea and then no plan yeah. to see. Cool. Yeah, and uh, I hope to have it done by the end of the year, and it's going to need. Uh, it'll actually go, just have one revision go off, but oh, wow. um, I think. But um, yeah, I'm real happy with it. It's extremely dark. It's very. Oh, I'm shocked. Gasp! <laughs> I put a 14-year-old girl through the ringer in this in a post-apocalyptic sort of environment. Yeah. Hell is nothing compared to this one, huh? <laughs> I mean, I put her, I put her in this. It'd be like a, an anime movie if I put her in that. <laughs> She'd kick ass and take names. It'd be glorious. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have been blessed with the presence of two guys who are just super talented. You heard them. Steve Boyett and Josh Moore. Thank you for joining us thank and thank you, you for so coming. Yeah, thanks so for coming. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.